other reasons that were given uh, between my wife and I, and it supported our decision to come up here. Well, I have to say, and I think you'll agree with me, that making a decision or attending an event always has reasons accompanying it. And those reasons are important, whether it be you're traveling on vacation, whether it be you're making a big financial or physical decision, you always have to have come up with reasons for those decisions or for those events. Well, here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, this is actually part one of two message because really the whole context of the rest of chapter 2 starts in verse 5 and goes all the way to verse 18. And so this, the reason why I say it's part one of two is just because there's a lot here, and I would like to encourage us to just take it slowly. So part one is today, and in two weeks, um, the Abnaurs, our missionaries to China, will be with us next week. In two weeks, we'll pick up part two. But I would like to challenge you, and I hope this works. I tried it yesterday. If not, Cindy, you might have to advance it for me. Yep, you're going to have to advance it for me. Uh, My challenge for you this morning is to meditate on the reasons for the incarnation. Meditate on the reasons for the incarnation. What the author does here in chapter 2 is he has given us a challenge. We looked at last time, verses 1 through 4, not neglecting our salvation. He now begins to delve into the question, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? So from this passage this morning, I'm going to give you two reasons why Jesus came. Number one, Jesus came to be preeminent. Jesus came to be preeminent. Verse 5 through 8, For he who has put the whole world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Now, it's interesting that the author goes back to angels, but he basically says in this verse that preeminence is reserved for the Son. He says that it has not been put to the angels. Why? Because going back to chapter 1, verse 14, the angels are ministering spirits. They're not like the Son. The Son is superior to them, and that was what chapter 1 was about. But he brings that discussion back into play because the angels are not in a position to be preeminent over the future inhabited earth. That's the idea of the word world there, world to come. This is reserved for the Son. They did, the world to come is not subjected to them. The word subjected here means to be in a submissive relationship. I would describe this using the illustration uh, I've had the opportunity to be a supervisor a couple of times in my job career. Uh, the last one being at South Dakota State University as a supervisor in the residential life custodial department. And at first I started out as just a regular custodial worker and then uh, my boss at that time, my supervisor, left to go take another position within the university system. And so that position was open. And so after thinking about it and praying about it and, and just wandering through some things, I decided to apply for it because I knew that I had the experience and I wanted some consistency uh, with our current cleaning system. And if someone from the outside came in, it might not be that way. So I, I applied for that position. I, I worked on it and uh, interviewed and got hired for it. 
And what happened when I got the position was that I went from just being an ordinary custodial worker, as they, they call us, laborer, if you will, to now being a supervisor. So now those who I was on equal plane with now were underneath me. So I had authority over them, and they were in subjection to me as in leadership role. That's what describes this word subjection here. The angels are not subject, have not been in our position to subject the world. That is for Jesus alone. And his position is preeminence. In Colossians 1.18, the Bible says, And he that is Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Angels cannot attain to it because of who they are. They are ministering spirits, and that's it. Notice also, secondly, that his preeminence is backed by Scripture. His preeminence is backed by Scripture. Verse 6, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. That's interesting. The, word, the quote here is from Psalm 8. We'll turn back there, there in a minute. But the beginning of the quote is a testimony to its truth. That's the, the, word, the phrase, one testified in a certain place. The word testified here means to solemnly declare the truth. And so what the, the construction of the sentence means is that this, this word uh, can also mean to assert solemnly with the implication that the quote is to be taken seriously. So one testified, so the author is, is using this phrase to get uh, his readers to seriously take this quote. And it's not that he's forgetting, because someone like, might look at that phrase also in a certain place and say, that, well, that he forgot where it's mentioned. Well, I don't think that's the case. He didn't forget where it's mentioned, but he desires to stress Scripture as speaking and not a mere human author, quote-unquote. So what he's doing is he's, he's showing that this is not from him, but from the authority of Scripture. So the quote itself is from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. If you can put your finger on Hebrews, let's go back there very briefly, to Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, and read it in its original context. Psalm 8, 4 through 6, and perhaps some of you know this uh, by heart, but the text, going back to verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory in the heavens. And this whole psalm talks about the excellency of the name of God in all the earth. The psalmist works through the psalm and extols the work of God through mortal man and for mortal man. And then in verses 4 through 6, he asks the question, why man has been able to be blessed in such a way by God? And the answer is that it is entirely the will and work of God with no input or value from mankind itself. It's all of God. And that's why he ends the psalm in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. God's creation works in a specific way, the way he wants. God does things the way he wills. 
And while the author here is using, here in the psalm, Psalm 8, and this is a psalm of David, is using the psalm to refer to man as being preeminent in creation, the author of Hebrews uses it to show that Christ is the preeminent one, not just in the order of creation, but over all things physical and spiritual. So Christ is the preeminent one. Man is preeminent in creation. He's the first one in creation. He's above animals. He's above plants. But Christ is the perfect fulfillment of preeminence. He is preeminent over all things physical and spiritual. Which leads me to to pause just for a second and say, aren't you thankful that Jesus is preeminent over all things? That we have a Savior who is not a mere prophet or a teacher as many religions teach, but that He is the preeminent one. He is above all things physical and spiritual, and He's not just some mere man. He is God in the flesh, the preeminent one. Notice also with me that there is nothing that is not under the preeminence of Christ. There is nothing that is not under the preeminence of Christ. Go to the last part of verse 8 in Hebrews chapter 2. For in that he put all in subjection under, under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So what the author is doing here in verse, that latter part of verse 8 is he's explaining the quote a little bit further in that, that Christ has not left anything not put underneath him. The word left here means to leave standing or lying. And putting under means to, be, to, to not be controlled or independent. So what is the author saying? He says, God the Father has not left anything in the physical or spiritual realm that is not underneath the preeminence of his Son. And again, aren't you thankful that there is nothing in this world, in this universe, that is not underneath God's control? He has put all things underneath his Son. There's nothing that is, that is wandering in our universe. There's nothing that is off on our planet that is not underneath the preeminence of Christ, the firstness of Him. Notice also with me that the preeminence of Christ is not yet complete. He'll add at the end of verse 8 this little disclaimer, but now we do not see all things put under Him. What is he saying? Is he saying it's not that Christ is not preeminent? No. He is saying that there are things still to come that need to be put underneath the authority of Christ. The plural word we see invites the readers, including us, to consider this truth about Christ. And the way the author uses the verb here shows that the future aspect of the preeminence of Christ is still waiting to be fulfilled. We can go to 1 Corinthians 15.25. Where Paul says this, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So Jesus still has things that need to be put underneath him. So it's not yet complete. There's a, there's a future aspect to that term. It's a future reality that will come, but it's not yet here. It's still waiting to be fulfilled. So that leads me to ask the question this morning by way of application. Is Christ preeminent in your life? You know, we have a lot of things today that, that take up our attention, right? 
The kids, you just got out of, got out of uh, school. You're, you're obsessed. Well, I shouldn't say obsessed. Maybe you are. Uh, with summer vacation. For, for some of you, it's, you're working. Some, for some of you are just taking time off. You're having fun, right? You're, you're enjoying the break. For others of us in this room, we're retired. And we're enjoying the retired life, not having to worry about getting up and going to work. And so we're spending time with family and doing other projects. For others of us, we're still working. We're still uh, in that work mode where we're getting up and punching a time clock. And we have other responsibilities that are flooding our minds and, and striving for priority in our lives. But in the chaos of our lives, in the mess of our lives, are we making Christ preeminent first? Are we making him the priority Or are we putting him two or three slots down from where he should be? Am I putting him in priority in my marriage, in my life, and and putting him in focus so that whenever happens, it's underneath his authority? Is Christ preeminent in your life? Do you look to him when, when struggles come across your path? you look to him when, when you don't know what to do or can't think of an answer to come up with for a certain problem in your life? Is he in that position of preeminence that you automatically go to him, or do you have to struggle to bring him up to where he should be? Is he the preeminent one in your life? He's preeminent over all creation, over everything physical and spiritual. So if he's that, why is he not preeminent in our lives now? Is Christ preeminent first in your life? Second reason to meditate on the incarnation, the coming of Christ to this earth, that Jesus came to be the glorified Savior. Verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now he gets to it. It's interesting that this is the first time in his book, and again, we're just a couple chapters in, that the author mentions the name of Christ. Previously, it had just been the Son, right? But now he gets to it that he is Jesus. Notice with me that his coming came by becoming a man. We see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels. Here that word see means to acknowledge the truth. This isn't fable or story. This is actual fact. He was made a little lower. What does that mean? That means to to be lower in status. Not, Not nature or essence, but in status. Christ never lost his divinity. Some would, some would teach that. There are some cults out there that teach that, that when Christ came to the earth, he lost his divinity, his deity. Well, no, he didn't. What happened in his coming to earth is that he became lower in status to the angels, not inferior to them. Like He, he was placed as a man on this earth, and, and the ranking of creation, where do angels rank? Angels rank above men, Right? So, so by his taking the form and the essence of a man, becoming the God-man, he became, in the pecking order, if you will, lower than angels. 
He did this through the incarnation, being born as a baby in Bethlehem. Notice the author adds here this little uh, word, a li- made a little. That, that word refers to this temporary status of this becoming lower than the angels. It was only temporary and just for a short time. He didn't stay that way, but he became, went back to his previous status. Notice also with me that the result of his coming is glorification. The result of his coming is glorification. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. How did this come about? This came about because of the suffering of death on the cross. And the word suffering here emphasizes on what is being suffered. What did Christ suffer on the cross? He su- suffered not only death, but sin and separation from God. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He suffered on the cross for you and for me as a result of coming to this earth. And as, and as a result of that work on the cross, he is crowned with glory and honor. What does that word crowned mean? It means to recognize, distinguish service or performance with an award. And, and the, the construction of the grammar there points to a past action that has present day results. He was crowned and he is still crowned. I would liken it to, to winning a medal or a trophy. Maybe some, how many of you ever have won a medal or a trophy for an event or anything, whether in college, high school, a few of you? When you win that trophy, that medal, guess what? It's not for forever, is it? Because next year or next season, you have to, if you're still in that event or maybe you graduated or whatever, it's up for grabs, right? That's why sports teams play for a trophy every year. Why? Because... The winners get to enjoy it for a short time and then they got to go through the next season and try and win it again. It's not for forever. It continually is up for grabs. The crown of glory and honor that the Savior wears is for forever. He is worthy of all honor and glory because of His suffering on the cross. He is wrapped in it. He is lifted up for others to see and for others to give Him the glory and honor He deserves being crowned with glory and honor. Let me pause right here and just ask you the question, are you honoring and glorifying your Savior? That He is crowned with glory and honor now. He is worthy of that glory and honor, being robed in majesty and in an extreme high position even now, but are you glorifying Him and honoring Him now? He's worthy of it. He died for you and for me. He suffered on the cross so that we would not have to suffer eternal, eternally, eternal separation from God. Do we glorify and honor Him now in the way we talk, in the way we speak, in the way we interact with one another? Are we glorifying and honoring the Savior who died on a cross for us? Notice also with me, please, that He came to be the Savior. He came to be the Savior and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. That word, that, shows the purpose of the phrase, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. This is why Jesus came. 
Jesus came to be our Savior. His incarnation, the technical term, the the theological term, his coming to this earth was purposeful. Jesus didn't come on this earth just to do whatever. Right? He came to this earth for a purpose. And the purpose was to die on a cross for us. And this was from motivated by the grace of God. We can, we can again go back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We looked at this in our study in Ephesians. But it just bears reminding for us, but for by the grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is by the grace of God. And the Savior tasted. What does the word taste mean? The word taste means to experience something either cognitively in your mind or emotionally. It's, it's a, in gra- grammatical terms, it's an idiom. It refers to experiencing death for everyone, it says. So, so what does this phrase mean? Jesus experienced death on the cross so that all mankind could reap the benefits of his death. If Christ did not, not, did not die and rise again, we have no hope. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. For in Christ we have hope. For if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christ had to die, had to taste death for everyone. Why? So that he could give the benefits of his death. And what are the benefits? of his death on the cross and his resurrection, that you and I can have eternal life. That you and I can have peace with God. You and I do not have to absorb the full wrath of God. That once broken fellowship is now restored. But all of that doesn't happen if Christ does not die on a cross and rise again. He experienced death so you, can I, you and I could benefit from it. Now, obviously, the benefits have to be applied to you. It says he might test death for everyone. Does that mean everyone gets saved? No. We read this morning from Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer comes in and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What does he say? What does Paul and Silas say? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved in you and your household. That's all it requires to believe. If you this morning have not taken that step of faith, I would encourage you to do that. Christ tasted death for you, and you can reap the benefits of his death and resurrection by believing in his name for salvation. I would love to talk to you about that. So that leads me to ask the question. I jumped a little bit ahead of myself. Point of application. Have you embraced the glorified Savior? There's, there's two kinds of people who can do this. As a believer, if you've come to that point of salvation, you confess you're a sinner, you repented, you ask Christ to save you, God to save you through His Son, are you remembering His saving work on your behalf? You know, it's really easy for us as believers to get lost in the busyness of life and the, the, the struggles of the Christian life. But are you remembering your Savior as you go through life? 
that he died for you, that he saved you so that you could live a life unto God. Too oftentimes we just remember him on a communion Sunday and forget him the rest of the time. Are you embracing what he did for you on a daily basis? As an unbeliever, as, a, as someone who has not come to faith in Christ, do you realize he came to die for you so that one day you will never have to fully experience death? And we all will die one day. Lord willing, if he does not come back soon, we'll die. Life will leave us, breath will be no longer, and we will die. But it doesn't have to be final, right? For the believer in Jesus Christ, death is not the end. When we die as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't fully experience the effects of death, right? Because when a person dies who has not accepted Christ, it's not just that they cease to, to be alive. Now they experience the full after effects of that. That they are completely and totally separate from God for eternity. They will have no relationship with Him. They are underneath His condemnation. But praise God, you don't have to experience that. Have you trusted in His saving death on the cross that was given for you so that one day you can be with Him forever and never fully experience what it means to truly die and be apart from Him. This is why Jesus came. And have you embraced your glorified Savior? You know, every Christmas, we celebrate the conclusion, or the, the incarnation, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. And that's great. I, I, think, I think it's a, it's a, a noble thing. And, and, and the author here calls to mind that event a little bit here. But I hope we've seen this morning, these few minutes, that the coming of Christ as a baby on Bethlehem is so much more than the angels singing and the shepherds celebrating. Why did Jesus come? I think he's given us two reasons. We'll look at more next time. He came to be preeminent. He came to be first, having all things underneath his feet to be put in that position of preeminence. And are we letting him be that in our daily lives? And number two, he also came to be the glorified Savior, the one who would die on a cross so that we might experience death only temporarily and not eternally. And this was all by the grace of God. So as you and I, this week, consider these truths, may we reflect on these reasons for the first coming of Christ to this earth some 2,000 years ago as we look forward to his second coming.